Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to diversify your candidate pool? Then come check out our job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, jstore.org is looking for a senior brand designer in New York City or Ann Arbor, Michigan. Companies, stop making excuses on your DNI efforts and post your job listing with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days and we'll spread the word for you throughout our podcast. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. I'm Maurice Cherry. And before we get started, you know, I hope that you've been following along this month with 28 Days of the Web. 28 Days of the Web is our sister site. And during February, we honor a different black designer or developer for each day in the month. So you can follow along and see this year's honorees at 28daysoftheweb.com. Or you can follow the project on Twitter. It's at 28daysoftheweb. Also, we are having our first live show of 2020 in Los Angeles tonight. That's right. Come out to Revision Path Live in L.A. on tonight, February 10th at 7 p.m. at the Umoja Center in Lamert Park. I'll be interviewing renowned black architect Roland A. Wiley as part of AIGA Los Angeles' L.A. River series. Tickets are still on sale, so check out the show notes for a link. Or you can go to losangeles.aiga.org for more information. You can also check our Twitter profile. We should have a link on there as well. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, Design Workflow Management for Modern Design Teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like a glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Erwin Hines, Creative Director at BASIC in San Diego, California. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Erwin Hines, and I am a Creative Director, one of the two Creative Directors at BASIC Agency located our headquarters are located in san diego but we have offices in mountain view as well as st louis nice talk to me about your work at basic like what's an average day like for you there oh man so my role as a creative director is different from some of the other creative directors at the agency's role we each kind of focus on our unique specialty so it's pretty expansive so i focus a lot on client work of course And so that just involves managing teams of two to maybe five people and guiding the process throughout the duration of or the lifetime of a specific project with one of our clients. 
and doing all of the initial strategy. And so at BASIC, we don't necessarily have a traditional strategy department. We expect all of our creatives to actually dive deep into strategy. So that's understanding the different cultural nuances of the the client's audience and making sure that we are making those like unique connections based on what the client's goals are and what the audience actually values. At the like the base level, that's one of my roles at Basic. But since I've been there for seven years, um, was one of the original people at the company. I've also really taken it upon myself to help guide the brand as a whole. So as an agency, we don't necessarily just view ourselves just as a service company. We also view ourselves as a brand that we're constantly trying to build. One of our products that we deliver is our service, right? So we're very inspired by brands like Nike, of course. And so my other role is really heading up what our brand looks like, what our brand feels like, what our brand sounds like, and then all of our different community initiatives that we do. So our podcast, Brand Beats, that's one of the things I kind of head up. Then we also have a community series called Crafted that was actually built to help bring together the different creatives within San Diego and help them to rub shoulders and break down the barriers between the different industries or creative verticals. And so I do a lot of community stuff as well as the client stuff. So again, it's like pretty expansive. That is really expansive. One thing that you just touched on there, which I thought was interesting, is that you expect the creatives, and I'm imagining these are like individual contributors, right? Mm-hmm. You expect them to get into the strategy. Like often that that strategy part tends to be reserved for maybe like someone higher up the ranks, like maybe a, a creative director or art director. Yeah. I mean, Why did you all decide to like take that approach? I think it it came out of necessity. So when I joined, there was only five people. So all projects we had to wear a lot of hats. So I joined as like a senior designer, but as a senior designer, I had to come in and build brands and all of that stuff. And we didn't have a strategy department. And what we realized is that having that designer or that creative from the very beginning, thinking about the brand strategy, thinking about how the brand's needs need to be met and or what the um, consumer's actual desire is and how the product that we're trying to market or trying to build a digital experience for actually meets that consumer's need and having the designer on board from the very beginning just creates a stronger, more seamless kind of project and process as well as just a stronger experience in the end. And so it's just sort of stayed that way because we realized the value in it from the beginning. And now with one of the products of basic kind of being the service that you deliver, is that something that came as sort of an organic evolution of the agency? Yeah, I would say so. And I think, again, it's just, it's mainly because we like to view ourselves as a brand and all great brands have the things that they create add to their larger sort of why, their larger sort of essence and their their larger perspective. And so we like to make sure we're always considering what is our larger perspective? What is our why as a company? And how are we bringing that forward through the work we do? And probably that also comes from the fact that we build a lot of brands for our clients and we always tell them to start with the why, understand why you exist, what your customer wants, and then make sure you're delivering on that constantly. And then all of the thing, all of the things that you do are just really an ecosystem of consumer touch points that reflect your why. And so I think we just internalize that ourselves and try and make sure that we're constantly focusing on refining and defining our why 
so that our work at the end of the day can become stronger. How did you first get started at Basic? Seven years ago, I was actually doing freelance. And so I was freelancing, working at home, not working with anybody, not working with like other designers, just working with clients. And I was doing that for about six months. I started to get very, very restless because before that I had been at a couple other agencies. So I was always like able to toss ideas off of people, always able to like feed off of the other creative energy. And I thought I would really, really love that freelance lifestyle where I get to do anything I wanted and hang out all day and take whatever days I wanted off and all of that stuff. But after six months, I again started to feel a little bit stir crazy. I didn't have people to toss ideas off of. And Basic actually reached out to me because I was doing some freelance work through an ex-employee of Basic. And so through that ex-employee, Matt Falk, who owns Basic, actually saw my work and decided to reach out to me. And at first, so like a little bit of a funny story, there's actually a pizza place in San Diego that's really big called Basic. And it was located across the street from the agency I had previously worked at. And we would go there like every single day. So when Basic reached out to me via email, at first I thought it was a pizza company asking for me to become a designer at the pizza company. (laughs) And at that point, like my freelance work was like Activision, Sony, like I had big clients as a freelancer. And so I was like, no, why would I ever want to meet with these people? But because it came through the referral of one of my other freelance clients, I decided to go meet with them and was pleasantly surprised that it was an agency that was doing amazing work. Now, talk to me about the team that you're working with here, because I would imagine, you know, after seven years, the agency has went through a lot of changes. You probably went through a lot of changes as a professional. What's your, your team makeup like now? I was going to say we do. So I think there's two answers to that question. Okay. One is over the years, we didn't focus on this and this wasn't like a a thing we try to do, but because the company is ran by a black man, so Matt Falk is black, and then a lot of the leadership is black as well as women, we've actually created a very, very diverse team with people from all over the world, all different cultures, all different perspectives. And that was just because we truly valued different ideas and different perspectives coming together in one space and felt like that collision of differing perspectives and ideas actually fosters better work, right? So that was the perspective we had every time we would hire someone new. We were like, do you challenge us? Do you come with something different? And if they did, that's when we knew that this was the right person. Of course, like taste level, great work, great portfolio, all of that stuff was like table stakes. Like, yes have all of that stuff, but you have to challenge us. Um, and so that's why I was like, please ask that question again, because I had to make sure I like gave this a proper response. So again, that's one side. And then as far as like the makeup of the team, it's pretty, pretty standard. We have about, I'm going to probably like mess up the numbers. We probably have about like 35 people in our San Diego office, 40 people in 40 to 50 people in the Mountain View office. And then we have like eight people in our St. Louis office. And so the St. Louis office is really an extension of the San Diego office. It supports a lot of the work that we do in San Diego. And then the Mountain View office is really just focused on Google. And then some of our other sort of Bay Area clients, but their main focus is Google. And so that team makeup is a lot different than the team makeup in San Diego. The team makeup in San Diego is project-based for individual clients. 
So you'll have like teams of three or four. We like to try and keep them small so they can be a lot more agile and nimble, as well as allow all of the designers to really have direct contact with the clients. That way there's no like hidden people, right? We always want to kind of elevate and empower all of our creatives, like I was saying with strategy, to really be the face of the company and to be able to someday lead their own projects. That's really our goal, right? We really want to make sure that each person grows. So we have junior designers, senior designers, art directors, creative director, and then we have kind of the higher level leadership team that helps guide and really think through the vision and mission of the entire agency. All of those departments and all of those groups, we do our best to work seamlessly together. So we strategically have set meetings so that whatever the leadership talks about can then be distilled down and shared to the rest of the team, as well as we have methods for communication in the other way. So we can take things that like maybe a new designer comes in and has some frustration points or some tension points with some points in the culture and all of this other stuff and maybe has some great ideas. We have tools and really it's just talking, but we have tools that allow that new designers like frustrations or ideas to bubble up to the surface to the leadership team. And that's how a lot of stuff at basic is really done. It's more so done from the younger creatives or from the ground level as opposed to top down. That's an interesting kind of model. And it's something that I've noticed as I, you know, honestly am interviewing and, and hiring creatives and stuff is that there certainly is more, at least I'm finding that there's more of a need to have designers that have sort of led projects in that way. Maybe mm -hmm. not necessarily from end to end, but they were more than just say the team member that did, you know, visual design. They actually had a project or part of a project that they really got to completely oversee. So it's good that you've got the agency kind of structured in that way to work with clients. Yeah. And I think it also, it benefits us at the end of the day. And of course, the designers, because then these creatives are well-versed if there has to be a shift in our agency. They're not just trained in one skill set. Mm -hmm. They're actually trained in, we like to say they're trained in brand building, which extends past websites, extends past UX, extends past whatever new medium or media type there will be. But now you understand the foundations of how to build a company that resonates with people. And then whatever that company needs in order to speak to that audience, we can create it. And now speaking of clients and projects, one of the clients you're working with are the Webby Awards, which yes. as people know from, I, I don't know if I even mentioned this on the show, but I'm one of the judges this year. How did you all end up working with them? So that was like a, it was like an honor because they honestly just reached out to us. So they didn't do any pitching process. They just reached out to us because we have won so many Webby Awards within the digital category over the past like five years. And so I think because of that, they looked at us firstly, but then they also saw the quality of our work and our focus on really elevating the brand and trying to define new UX patterns. Because we went a lot in like best practices. And we do that by trying to look at and understand and really pull forward what your brand's actual unique value proposition is, what your brand's mission is. Very similar to when people are creating like a retail experience for like Ralph Lauren or when people are creating a retail experience for like Off-White. Like those stores look different because they're trying to express what is inherently different about that brand. 
in far too long digital experiences. We're moving away from that because everybody was sort of moving to these like templatized systems because they were like deemed as easier to use. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we came in because we started like the agency started doing at the very foundation was mainly branding. And I think that's why we approach all of our projects with a very, very brand heavy mindset. And so they saw that we really hone in on what that brand's message is, what the nugget of truth is, and pull that forward into the digital experience to create something that is still very, very easy, simple to use, but also has just a touch of like difference, something that expresses that brand. What are the best types of clients for you to work with? I honestly think for me, all clients are the best type of clients. That might sound like a cop-out answer. It's a little but bit the, of a cop-out answer. I was going to push back on that. But. No, I was going to say the, the reason I say that, because I mean, obviously, I like have ideal clients. Like the ideal client is like somebody who wants to be super open, super collaborative, challenges us, very similar to what we look for when we look for new employees. It's almost the same as when we look for like our ideal client, right? Like we want to be challenged. We want to be pushed. We want this work to be the best work that we've ever done. Mm -hmm. Not saying that it needs to be like the craziest design, but it expresses your brand. It tells your story and you want to push us because you know your industry better than we do. And we know digital maybe better than you do. That's what we really look for when we're looking for relationships. The reason I said all clients is only because I've been in situations where at first I was like, I don't want to work with this type of client. Or this type of client is like really, really frustrating. But just based on my time being in this industry, or maybe it just comes from like me being a black man in America, just realizing that most situations are not easy. And I'd rather look at it as an opportunity to learn and grow than ever like a challenge that I need to run from. And so even those clients that are super challenging, I think I learned something new. I learned how to look at something new. I learned how to navigate a new area or a new industry or a new client and deliver something good at the end of the day. And as an agency in general, because our product that we deliver at the end of the day is this service of design, we look at our clients and who's reaching out to us really as our consumer or a customer. And we try and understand their latent needs. We try and understand what's frustrating them about their company what hierarchy they have to go through, what pushback they're getting. So we don't look at our project in a silo saying like, we have to get this through and all this stuff. We really try and understand what the client is going through, what the individual, like the person Mm -hmm. is going through at that organization. So we can help them at the end of the day. Like at the end of the day, their goal is to create this product get this website done, get this digital experience done, get this brand done so that they can help their company be successful, ultimately helping them be successful. And so we try and understand their pathway of growth and all of that stuff. So I think that's why I'm like, every client is great because every client is a person. And at the end of the day, we're here to help people, not just create websites. Gotcha. Great explanation there. I like that. So let's switch gears. Talked about your work at Basic, and I do want to get more into some of the, the community work, but tell me about where you grew up. So I actually, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Ah. Yeah. (laughs) Grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Love it still. Just can't move back there mainly because there's not like the job opportunities. Although it is like having this like really awesome resurgence. Like every time I go back, which is only once a year and it's during the winter. So it's probably not the best time to come (laughs) back from like San Diego. That's always sunny. But 
every time I go back, it's like there's something new. There's there's new energy. There's there's new creatives moving into that city. So every time I go back, it is cool and it makes me go like it makes me miss it. But again, I I can't move back purely because of the industry and now my my investment in San Diego. Yeah, that makes sense. I have so for folks that have listened to the show for a while, they know I've got family in Cleveland. My dad's side of the family is from like Cleveland. <laughs> Shaker Heights. What? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yes. (laughs) I was like, so most of my family, like my dad's side, all grew up in Shaker. I grew up in Beachwood. So if you have family that is from Shaker, I feel like there could be a connection. Like they might know them. My my family is like heavily involved (laughs) in community stuff in Uh Cleveland. And they were like a family of like five or six. In the Shaker school system. And so they had like somebody in almost every grade. There probably is some like overlap. I think there probably is. Yeah. (laughs) So growing up there, I mean, was creativity like a big part of your childhood? Yes, I would definitely say so. I think I always had a had an inkling for creative. Like my family would push me into doing sports. I think that was just like by default what what my family did. Like everybody played sports. Everybody was good at sports. And so on top of like me wanting to be creative and my parents supporting that. So they like put me in art classes. They, they encouraged me to try music, although I sucked. Like I tried to play trumpet, the worst experience. <laughs> and at some point I actually thought I could sing and I thought I could play piano, but it was like just me playing on my like parents' piano and I'll like be in the living room singing and trying to play. And it, it like, I think about it now and I'm like, that had to be so cringeworthy. And my parents wouldn't yell at me. They would just let me do it. So I think I had like very, very supportive parents when it come, came to like exploring my creativity. But again, I was also pushed to do sports. But in like high school, I actually like dabbled in like pattern making. I really, really loved clothing and creating my own clothes. So that was like, my main form of creative expression throughout high school was like making clothes or making shoes. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Like I, I viewed that as like, I would like drew and stuff when I was like younger, like yeah. super young. But then as soon as I got into like high school and I like touched the sewing machine, I was like, oh, this is like, this is dope. Yeah. I can like, I can create the things that I put on my body. I don't have to wear other people's stuff. Like that was like so cool to me. And I viewed it as this, like, this living testament to who you are inside. So it was like this walking billboard of sorts. Billboard sounds so markety, but the reality is like this walking art piece. Mm. I always found that like very powerful. Like I didn't realize the power of it then. I think I liked it on a very shallow level, but there was like power in creating something that I was going to put in my body or that other people desired to put on their body. So when did you sort of know then, I mean, with not only this exposure that your parents supported, but, you know, even now you're talking about fashion and apparel and stuff like that. When did you kind of know, like, oh, this is something I could do for a living? Ooh, I actually didn't know that until my, like, second half year in college. (laughs) Well, because, like, my parents supported it, but it wasn't like I didn't have any patterns Mm -hmm. to look at when it came to a designer. Like, I didn't know any designers. I didn't oh. know anybody who made it in fashion design or I didn't even realize fashion design was a thing. Like, I was doing it, but I didn't realize it was like a thing. Like, I never even like I never fathomed that. Like, my my access to like creative profession was actually architecture. 
And so on top of doing like fashion stuff in high school, I also did a lot of CAD and took like architecture classes. And that was mainly due to the fact that I had exposure because my parents owned a development company. And so I saw it and that was like, oh, I don't really like I saw construction as like a place I can go in my so my parents owned a development company and then my grandparents on my father's side owned a, a successful like exterminating company and landscaping company. I'm sorry. My grandparents on my father's side owned the landscaping company. My grandparents on my mother's side owned a successful exterminating company. So those were like the pathways that I was exposed to on top of like doctors and all of that stuff. But like those were the entrepreneurial pathways that I saw. And so out of all of those... I was like, oh, you designing like landscaping, like a landscape architect. That's kind of cool. Or designing a home where people can live and like creating these spaces that impact your emotions and, and all of that stuff. Like I found that deeply interesting. So I took some architecture classes in high school just to learn CAD. And I also did like my senior project at my parents' company Wow. with the architect. That's convenient. Oh. Yeah, that was like super convenient. But again, it was like, it was basically like what I was exposed to. It made my path way longer to get to realizing that design was a thing I could do. So like, then my first year in college, I studied, or my focus was construction management. And with that, I wanted to really focus on this idea of architecture or city planning. And that was partially due to the fact that when I was seeing my parents build these homes, so they built homes and like they bought affordable housing in the inner city. And when I saw them doing that, and then we would actually go back and always meet with and talk to all of the people that we built homes for to help maintain them because we also had the landscaping business and we also had the exterminating business. So oh. we would actually help these people maintain their homes. Yeah. And it was amazing just the connections and then the joy that we would see on these people's face, right? And I think. I was very, very impacted by that. Like the fact that, again, space, things that we create can uplift a community. Mm -hmm. That to me was like, what the heck? Like, this is incredible. This is incredible. And so that's what took me in this space of like really trying to pursue architecture or city planning. And my whole thing of like city planning was like, how do you actually create spaces and cities that are equitable for both? the privileged and the underprivileged and how do you bridge that gap between those two to actually begin to create some empathy so people understand the other side like to me empathy is like the biggest thing in the world because once you have a sense of understanding like true understanding not just like oh yeah i, I, I know what you're saying but i don't care once you have like true empathy from both sides then we can begin to push forward and work together to create equitable solutions for everybody that might be like hella idealistic, but that was like my mission, my goal, my vision. But I feel like nowadays what they call that like service design or, or something to that yeah. effect. So you were ahead of the curve there. Yeah. Except the only challenge was I hated math. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I like I hated it. So then like I'm there, I'm like designing cool things, but none of them can be built. So my teachers are like, you know, you, you can't make this. At all. I'm like, but it would be cool though if you could, right? Like, right? And so my first year in college, that was happening. And then I also took like art history classes. And I had never ever taken an art history class. So I didn't understand the history of art. I didn't understand the story of art. I didn't understand 
the depths of art, really, before I went to college. So that first year, I also took an art history class. In that class, they're teaching us about like Basquiat. They're teaching us about Picasso. They're teaching us about, it was like a, a very like in-depth, like all history of art. And they're talking about the impact that each one of these artists had had and how they were, and this is something that I took away, where it's like every single artist was, every great artist was basically acting as a mirror reflecting society's ills back to itself so that society could actually digest it and understand it. Hmm. Because in our day-to-day life, we move so fast, we don't actually take time to sit and think and see what's happening in front of us. And the purpose of art has been to kind of create and take a moment and take a chunk of time and give it to us in a digestible way so that we actually can understand what's happening, right? So great writing, great podcast, great anything, and I'm including all of these things under the umbrella of art, mm-hmm. do that, right? Like they force us to have a conversation. They force us to talk. They force us to live in a space for a moment and take us out of our day-to-day. So I saw that and I was like, oh yeah, I don't have to do architecture. I can just do some art to like have the same level of impact. So then I actually took time off of school and I began to just, I still didn't know that I could do design. That still wasn't clear to me. So I took some time off of school, like about like half a year. And I went and like hung out in my friends, like dorms at UPenn. And I would just like go audit like classes. And she was studying marketing and advertising and sitting there with her being able to, and sitting in those classes and like hearing about branding, hearing about marketing, hearing about like advertising. I was like, Oh shoot, this is like, they're using this power to like create these emotions and create these feelings and create these desires. And they're tapping into the things that like make us human. Like that to me became like really, really interesting. Still, I didn't know how to get into it because I definitely couldn't get into UPenn after dropping out of college. So I went back to like creating clothes. Again, that was like my default. I like kept making shoes and selling shoes. And then one of my other friends actually saw the shoes that I was making. It was like, hey, you should come check out the Art Institute of Pittsburgh. And I was like, yeah, why not? I was kind of like down for whatever. And then I went down to Pittsburgh and met with some of the people at the Art Institute of Pittsburgh. I'm not saying the Art Institute is good. I would never promote the Art Institutes. That's just where I had to go because I didn't have a portfolio at all. And then I actually wanted to do game design at first. And it was because they were like talking to me about their courses that they had, going through all of the details. They first mentioned game design. They talked about advertising, talked about all these other things. But game design was interesting because it wasn't far off of what I enjoyed about architecture, which is creating these immersive spaces that people essentially live in or inhabit for a period of time. And those spaces can be used to create connections. And since games are played over the internet and it creates connections for people across the world, I was like, oh yeah, I totally want to do that and try and figure out a way to create like healthy games that like create these like connections and try and build empathy with people. But you needed a portfolio. That's like a constant theme where it's like, these are the things I wanted to do, but I didn't have either the love of math, or I wasn't good at math, and I didn't have a portfolio. So then I was then forced into graphic design at the Art Institute of Pittsburgh. And through my courses and through my classes, I actually ended up falling in love with it because 
like once I took my branding class, again, it kind of re-sparked some of that energy that I had when I was sitting in and auditing the classes at my friend's school, where it was like, oh, branding has immense impact. It's not just about the beauty. It's not just about the aesthetic, but you're creating this like entity. You're creating this thing that if used properly will reflect and amplify the voices of the people that are supporting it. And so that's when I knew that I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go hard at branding. That's quite a journey. Yeah. It was, it's like all, it's a little bit all over the place, but it has a through line. I'm curious and I'm going to, you know, we don't have to dwell on it too much, but why would you never promote the art Institute? I didn't go to art Institute. I just want to be clear about that, but I'm just curious why. (laughs) Oh, I mean, there are four proper universities that's been sued mad times. Oh. And the Art Institute of Pittsburgh is actually closed down. So I don't want people to oh, get confused damn. with the Chicago Institute of Art. Uh-huh. Like that's an amazing institution and it has nothing to do with the art institutes. The art institutes are all for profit. And they they would like they lied and they would fudge the numbers for how many people they were actually placing, which was just sad because you would see people who like they would say they had really high placement rates. Mm-hmm. And there were some people who got jobs. Like I was somebody who got a job, but I did so much work outside of school. Like everybody who got a job did so much work outside of school, but they didn't tell you that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and if you're a student and you're putting your trust in an organization to teach you the skill sets and the things you need to get that job, it's almost like, okay, if that's a part of it, why aren't they including that in the, in the onboarding? Why aren't they saying like, yes, you'll have your curriculum, you'll learn your skill sets, you'll learn the tools. But in order to guarantee a job, you need to make sure you're doing freelance. You need to make sure you're going around to all of these different networking events. You need to make sure you're collaborating with kids from Carnegie Mellon. You know what I'm saying? Like all of those opportunities were open, but it's like I had to figure it out and open them myself. Okay. No, I was I was curious about that for two reasons. I mean, one, I like when people push back against these sort of, uh, I don't want to say like industry standard tropes of like, you have to go to this school in order to Mm -hmm. make it as a designer. Like I do think, and you know, this is sort of a problem with the industry is that there is still this notion of that. You have to go to like these certain schools. Like you have to go to design schools to be considered designer. Essentially. Mm. I know like just to tell my story a little bit, like I went to, to HBCU. I went to Morehouse here in Atlanta. Nice. It's funny. You mentioned you didn't like math. I majored in math. Uh, but like my first semester, I was like, this is a lot. And I really wanted to go into web design. I mm-hmm. was I was a computer science major. And I remember my professor at the time, you know, I was telling him I wanted to do web design because I had like been tinkering around with HTML, like reverse engineer page. This is like 1999. So this is for God, this is so long ago. Yeah. <laughs> this is a while ago where I was like telling my advisor this and i remember him telling me how you know the internet is a fad like this isn't going to be around for too much longer and if this is something that you really want to you know put all your eggs in this basket you should probably change your major or go to another school i was like well damn okay and at the time i wanted to go to the art institute because we had we had two art colleges here in atlanta we had the atlanta we had the art institute of atlanta and we had the atlanta college of art Uh, the Mm -hmm. Atlanta college of art is now closed down now we have a, a Savannah College of Art and Design yeah. campus here. But for me, I was like, yeah, the Art Institute's like, that was it. Because I saw the commercials. They would have these commercials where you could like 
see they're doing all this stuff. And I was like, oh, so this is where you go to learn design. And then even later on in my career, because I'm self-taught, even later on in my career, there would be these sorts of, I guess you call them gatekeepers, I suppose. I don't know Mm -hmm. who would say like, oh, well, you're not a designer because you didn't go to design school. Like, yeah, that's the only way when clearly it's not the only way you can. Yeah, that's one of the, the great things about this industry is that you don't necessarily have to follow specific path or go to these specific schools in order to be a success. Yeah, that's I was going to say, like, that's trash, <laughs> like very much so, because, again, for me, like even without the artists Institute, I think I just needed to be exposed and the artists Institute exposed me to the fact that this could be a profession. But I did all of the work on the mm. side and on my own. Like you can go audit classes to learn some skills or you can learn a lot of the skills that you need on YouTube and stuff. To me, I think the main takeaways of university for me were the were some of the non-design classes mm. or the classes that were more focused on like theory and um, psychology. Like those to me were like the biggest helps because it expanded my mind as opposed to just expanding my skill set. And so like, if there is anybody who's listening, who like is questioning whether they need to go to school or do I need to do this? I think as long as you're doing things that are expanding your mind so that you understand cultural nuances and you understand like, again, how to look at the world differently, that to me is what as a designer university is really good for. Gotcha. So from Pittsburgh to San Diego, that's a trek. Well, really from Cleveland to Pittsburgh to San Diego. That's a Oh yeah. That's kind of a trek. When you look back at your career, because I, you know, did my research, I saw you've worked at a few agencies at Nobis, you know, Modlify, you did some work for Digitaria, et cetera. Like when you look back at your career, like what did each of those places kind of teach you? Like did you walk away from those experiences with like a nugget of information that you take with you now? Yeah. I would definitely say I did. I think whether it be good or bad, I've definitely learned something from each of those experiences. So like modify and some of the other ones were just like freelance clients. Like I was, I was the dedicated creative, but they were mainly freelance. So it wasn't necessarily like major learning experiences, right. Other than like continuing to hone my craft. Whereas Nobis interactive, I was also the only creative and was brought in as like a creative director. And it was to help like lead and, build out this brand. And I think one of the things that I learned from that was the importance of good leadership and the importance of like a strong founder. And not to like Novus actually didn't have that. And I think that's why I learned it because I I saw what lacked in the experience and how it kind of destroyed the organization and the company. And so from that, it's just like how to be a good leader by doing everything opposite of what that leader did and how to be honest, right? And making sure that you're inspiring your team. And then when I went to Digitaria, that was like learning how to manage growth because Digitaria was, when I went to Digitaria, it was still relatively small. It had just gotten purchased by JWT. And over the time that I was there, it like expanded rapidly. And what ended up happening was you kind of like lose some of that like design forward culture. And the, the owners like knew that, like their focus was like expansion, growth, and almost taking over and becoming their own holding company. That was like their goal. And they actually, they, they've done that. So now they're called Miram and Miram is 
bought out a bunch of other digital agencies and then Digitaria became Miram, which is the holding company of all those other digital agencies. So like they were like super successful in that goal, but I saw the sacrifice of creative to be this like bigger entity. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was like from there, it was making sure that when I go to the next organization that we manage growth properly so that we don't lose culture. Because when you lose culture, you have high attrition. Attrition costs more than keeping people mm-hmm. as well as it costs your work. Like if your your work is, is, is your product. And if you lose all of those people, then your product suffers. Yeah, that is so true. I see that now in a lot of startups, a lot of tech startups usually where that's the case. There's been this sometimes over-indexing on culture fit, you know, and oftentimes when bad things happen at a company like that, and it's to the detriment of the product, it's to the detriment of the people that work there. Like it's, it's pervasive when stuff like that happens. Yeah. Now you're in San Diego, which, and we talked about this before recording. I was like, I don't think of, when I think of San Diego, I don't think of design or culture, but like San Diego is one of the, the 10 largest cities in the U.S., which I don't know if a lot of people know that, but I'm curious to learn more about your community work there. You said through basic that you all are kind of, um, I guess you did this like community series in San Diego. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. All right. So I've been in San Diego for like 10 years when I first moved here, like moving from like Pittsburgh where you had like gallery crawls, like once a month or like spending time in New York a lot where you just have a lot of culture, like just a lot of creative culture. Mm -hmm. And then even like touching LA, It was like, there's just like an energy and a vibe. When I moved here 10 years ago, I was like looking for those things. And then all I could find was like, okay, there's breweries and there's beaches. Like, Mm. okay. Which is like super cool for a little bit, especially when you're, when you feel like you're a city boy and yeah, I like the beach. I'm going to sound like ungrateful, like beach is like nice, but at the same time as a creative, I need that creative energy. So when I first moved here, there was like nothing. And over the years, especially within the past like three or four years, I began to realize like how wrong I was and just how hidden the energy and the vibe was in San Diego. It was like you had to know. You had to know the people. You had to know what's going on in order to find it. So it was a lot more about the underground scene in San Diego. And it was just like hard to find. And then within the past like two years, that underground scene has started to really bubble up. And so when we talk about like, what is the creative scene in San Diego, we have like some of the best poets in the world. Like we have like our poetry society wins like nationals all of the time. Mm -hmm. We have some of the best dancers in the world. There's like two dancers in San Diego who do choreography for like Justin Bieber. They have a new Broadway show. They do stuff for Britney Spears, but they like, live in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And then we also have some amazing other like dancers, traditional urban, as well as classical ballet. Then we have amazing chefs and an amazing culinary scene. And then we also have like amazing creatives and amazing designers, like basic being one of those, but then you also have like Grizzly and like a few other agencies and uh, young creatives who are here in San Diego. And then you have like amazing DJs and music. So you have all of these different, like amazing creative industries and creative spaces But one thing that we were seeing is that they weren't rubbing shoulders. So it kind of goes back to the thing I was saying that I had this goal since my very foundation of like my creative spark 
which is like, how do you build spaces where people can come together from different backgrounds and start to develop empathy and understanding and work together? And again, so you have all these different creatives and creative people in these different spaces, and they're all doing these amazing things, but they weren't rubbing shoulders. They, there was no friction. There was no collision. And so we created this very simple series or this very simple idea of like just bringing 12 people together from different industries, different backgrounds, different cultures, different races together over dinner. And we use food as the medium of connection because it's visceral, it's easy to understand, and it causes and sparks conversation. And so we strategically do like a five course to seven course meal, mainly because it creates more time. And then the food itself is never really the central focus of the time. It's there, but really the central focus is about creating a space for conversation to happen. And these 12 people do not know each other at all. And they get free invites. So no one has to pay because we want to make sure that it's open and accessible to everybody. So we'll always like have a student. We'll have like a somebody who works in architecture. We'll have a scientist. We'll have like somebody who owns property within like an undeveloped neighborhood. We'll have fine artists, designer. So we'll kind of mix and match these different groups. And then each one of the experiences, which happen monthly, has a theme. And we utilize the food to connect and to like make people comfortable. And then the theme is utilized to create a unifying connection and conversation between everybody. And those themes are like things like identity. And in that dinner, which was our dinner in December, in that dinner, the theme was identity. And it was about exploring the ever-evolving nature of the self and what identity means to each one of us individually. And so we usually start off each dinner with like introduce yourself and then kind of go into that line of conversation. And usually that first round of conversation is like really, really, really deep where people kind of get really personal. They expose things that they wouldn't have otherwise exposed. And maybe it's because it's a group of strangers. So you feel a little bit more like comfortable, like no one knows me here, but they've been really powerful, mainly because it's a small, intimate group who ends up having a very deep conversation with one another. And we've seen a lot of people begin to work together from the different crafted experiences, which is really the main goal. Like there's no other ulterior motive other than bringing people together and then promoting and showing people that there's other things going on in the city. So you don't have to leave. Cause we also had like high attrition of like creative talent in San Diego because like a creative was like, I do fashion, but there's no one else here doing creative stuff. I'll just go up to LA because there's more opportunity. Which right now, there still is more opportunity in LA, obviously. Like, there's more people who appreciate that, that type of stuff. So, you have a higher or a larger consumer base as a creative in LA. But one of the things that we're really focused on with this dinner, as well as all of the other groups who are doing really amazing things. So, there's also this group called the Travelers Club, there's a group called Weird Use. And I can like go on and on with all of these different groups. But everybody is now focused on creating and opening up the doorway for opportunities for these young creatives so that they don't have to leave. So that's the dinner as well as like the energy in San Diego right now is like everybody is like focused on building a community that can thrive and can be self-sustaining. And it's it's amazing because it's really collaborative. So there's not a lot of like negative competition, if that makes sense. It's a lot of like collaborative co-building of the community that we all want nice 
I'm going to have to visit San Diego. It sounds, it sounds like a lot of great energy there. Also, I mean, San Diego is like right on the border to Mexico. Like you guys are right. Exactly. That's like another beautiful thing about it is like we have all of this rich culture. One of the things that I find the most interesting, and we begin to talk about this a lot through our crafted like Instagram, is this idea that culture is made by many. And the beauty of San Diego is unlike some of the places in on the west coast unlike sf or unlike la people come here with different perspectives and goals and backgrounds like a lot of people will go to sf with one perspective and one goal so no matter what race you are what cultural background you are you have a specific perspective or goal whereas here because you have the military because we're a border town because you have all the universities and the different levels of universities and then you just have like random transplants who are just like coming here because it's something different or you have like the people who are coming here for the beaches, you have the people who are coming here for the music. So you have all of these different people that it almost is akin to something like a New York where you have this really, really diverse makeup. And that's what makes the culture of New York. And to me, it's like, that's what makes the culture of San Diego is this diverse makeup. And it's just us realizing like over the past year, we've been realizing that that is our true power. Like we don't have to just be a beach city and a brewery city we can be like a creative powerhouse. And like this year, we're going to actually have our first design week as well. So it's like, there's a lot of movement around San Diego. And I'm happy like to work in an agency that has been so invested and lets me kind of take the reins on a lot of the community initiatives and making sure that we're using our skill sets and our talents in authentic ways. And like, we still do like can drives and all of those things. But I think we used to just do that And we started asking ourselves, how do we as people who understand how to build brands start to build the brand of our own city and really give back to our community in a deeper, authentic way that lasts? So it's like the the teach a man to fish versus just like fish for them, right? So Mm -hmm. I think what we're trying to do is build programs that teach people how to fish. Ultimately, that will come back to other issues like homelessness or other issues like education, because by connecting these different people, you can essentially begin to affect all of those different things because you're building empathy across these different groups. So connecting somebody who like having somebody who maybe their family is being gentrified, right. Or they're, they're a part of like the gentrified class. You have them at the table with like a property developer and maybe a city official and you actually allow them to have true conversation as opposed to just like yelling. That's like the main goal of, of crafted. Are you satisfied creatively? Oh yeah, totally. I'm like, I'm more than satisfied. Partially because like whenever I'm unsatisfied, I just create something like crafted. Mm-hmm. Like I literally just think about like, okay, if I'm not having that feeling of expressing empathy or the feeling of me being able to tell my true authentic story and really explore who I am. If I'm not having that, then I just create another avenue and another pathway for me to have it. So I never, I never really rely on other people for my creative satisfaction, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. Uh, I, the reason I was, was sort of asking that <laughs> because I was talking with a, a friend of mine, actually, uh, her name's Diane Holton. She's been on the show before too. Nice. And uh, we were just, you know, kind of talking, just catching up. And she was mentioning, uh, she's like, you're like Beyonce. Like you don't take your foot off our necks. I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, <laughs> she's like, you're doing this revision path. And now you got this anthology series coming out and stuff. And, and like, for me, like when I'm doing these things, and it's, it's interesting you mentioned like 
you sort of see the void and you figure <laughs> out like, how can I fill the void with something that, mm-hmm. can, that can help? So like with me, with the anthology, it was like, there's not a lot of people of color and indigenous people doing enough writing about design. Like you go to a bookstore and you look in the arts or design section there are very few, if any, book in there from people of color. Definitely not from black people. Yeah. And it's like, where does that begin? Like, it begins with just, like, you know, writing an essay and, like, getting the the feedback from people and then building on that. And, you know, I think now, certainly with technology, it's easier than ever to start up a blog and put your thoughts out there. One thing that I'm experimenting with this year is is getting back to blogging. I used to blog a lot in like the early 2000s and stuff. And I'm thinking about getting back out there now because it's so much easier to just get your thoughts out before. Like yeah. when I was blogging back in the day, like you had to know like how to like have a MySQL database and install to the database and then mm-hmm. run the installation and then keep up with all this. And you have to have hosting and a domain and all this. And like now I, I use this tool called Notion, which is sort of like this all-in-one kind of workplace. It's like, Evernote and Trello and oh, nice. all these things like had a baby and it, it's Notion and like <laughs> you can blog from Notion so like nice. you can write a page and you can set the page to public and then because it's all you know in the cloud or whatever but like you can set that page to public and then just have people read your stuff and it's like I have all my projects like I have all like revision path recognize all my stuff in Notion and then I've got like a little separate thing that's going to be the blog that I'm going to start and it's like oh I could just write while I'm in here and publish and it's so easy, but I get the, I get what you mean about, you know, you find, if there's something that's not fulfilling you, then you find a way to kind of get that get fulfilled. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I actually love what you were just saying. I think that that's one of the biggest things within our industry that we've started to see in almost every other creative industry. Mm -hmm. So like you start to see it in fashion and it's being led by these like black designers. And I know that like, they probably wouldn't want you to call them black designers, right? Because no one wants to be like pigeonholed. And I hate being called a black designer because it feels like, oh, you're just trying to say I'm good for that. Mm. Uh, as opposed to just being like, I'm a good designer and I happen to have a very rich narrative that helps guide everything I do that you might not have. But like what you're saying about how we need more of that. We need more of that story within this industry, within the design world. Because for far too long, it hasn't been there. But we're here. But it almost feels like within this industry, it almost feels like we're the we're like a minority group who's just like pushed to the side. Mm -hmm. And it's not about us. We you know, what I'm saying like it's it's strange because the level of importance that specifically for me, like black people have had within the building of America and what America is and what America pop culture is a lot of stuff is based on like pop culture and the nuances of pop culture and all of that stuff. And like, we kind of create that Mm -hmm. and our people create that. We create the vibe of coolness that drives commerce right around the world, but people don't want to recognize that. Uh And so I think it's important, like what you're doing, hella important because it begins to shine light on the importance of these views and understanding these views and take and takes us out of just the take maybe like a a young black kid reads it and it helps to take them out of just the consumer mindset Mm -hmm. of just i'm going to consume 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 i can actually create like these platforms like instagram and all of those things 
became popular off of the content that youth create. A lot of those youth are like young black kids. They're creating content for an organization that they don't even know that they can work at mm-hmm. or that they don't even know that they can build themselves. And so I think it's like just showing that pathway, like going back to what I was saying at the very beginning where I didn't even know things existed because I wasn't exposed to it. Yeah. And so by what you're doing, you're like helping give that exposure, hoping that like young kids are listening to this stuff. I hope so, man. Hope they're listening. Hope they're reading. And even, I mean, not even, I would say just young kids, because that exposure can really come at, at any age, you know, Yeah, true. just, just to know that the option is out there or that there's, there can be something different that can really come at, at any age. But yeah. What, what piece of advice has stuck with you the longest when you think back over your career, you think over your creative journey, like what is that advice? Ooh. So I never had like a, a specific mentor like ever in my creative journey. And I think it's just because I don't know, I was a knucklehead. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I never like looked for mentors. I would just always listen to like interviews from like Kanye West or like whatever creative I'm super inspired by at that time. Mm-hmm. And I think, but the, the biggest nugget of truth that I ever received was like from my family that just was about my father one time said, I don't like who you're becoming. And it was when I was losing myself for a little bit and I wasn't necessarily thinking about my heritage and my past and my upbringing. Uh And to me, that conversation is the conversation that has stuck with me and helped to guide me. Although my, my, my father probably wouldn't remember this, but that like one moment and then the conversation that followed about making sure that you're checking with your heritage, making sure that you're checking with the things of your past, the things that your grandfather did, the things that both sides of the family have done for me. It didn't put a burden on my shoulder. It actually made me proud of who I am, where I come from. And it made me want to truly honor that. So that was probably be like the, the biggest piece of advice. Again, I think I'm somebody who looks and desires to look for inspiration outside of my industry. I have never really looked at other design and other designers for my pathway. I really love to understand and look at culture because the things that we're creating are all for culture. And so even with like creatives, my biggest inspirations are people in the world of fashion or the world of music. So I'd be like uh, Kirby from Pierre Moss, right? Or, or Virgil. Like those to me are like some of my biggest inspirations because they stand for breaking down barriers and walls just by being fucking good. Yeah. I don't know if you can curse on this, so I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, you can curse. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Just by being good at what they do, and they they move with theory and a message. And to me, that's like, that to me is my biggest inspiration, is the idea of moving with theory, moving with a message that is consistent, and it might evolve over time, but there's always substance there. Yeah. And so, for me, it's it's a combination of what my father said, as well as like growing up. I think I've, I've always been like really proud of being a black man, no matter where I was or how I grew up. I grew up in like a predominantly white neighborhood, but I would like walk around school, like my predominantly white school with my fist in the air because <laughs> I was just like super proud of like who I am and where I came from. And I think it was because on top of like what the media would show you yeah. and all the negativity that the media would show you about being a young black man yeah. and how you can just be a rapper or you can just be this and like that's all you would see. 
or criminal, like the criminalization of like black people. My parents had like these books, I forgot what they're called, but we got these like books every single month. Yeah. These books every single month that would just dive into one like impactful, like African-American. And so seeing those stories of like Booker T. Washington and like getting to see this diversity or like Harriet Tubman, like you act, like seeing those things at a very young age, I got to see the diversity of black people and that we exist on a, a spectrum, a very large spectrum. Mm. And it's not, we're not just a homogenous group. So I, I had an early realization that I didn't have to try and be black. I just was black. And that blackness can exist on a very large spectrum but it's still impactful and it still carries the same narrative story. But my experiences are going to add to that history and that legacy to create something unique. But I need to make sure that I carry all of that with me into every room I go to, into every like time I'm sitting with like a CEO or a C-suite person at Google, I need to bring with me the legacy and heritage of blackness and be proud of it and speak with the strength of that heritage. Wow. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work do you want to be doing in 2025? And so me and a couple of my friends actually started another project that's actually building a restaurant group. We have two restaurants. One is actually opening, like they're actually building it currently. One is opening at the beginning of 2021. There's another one that's opening in October. And then we have a retail space that's opening in like next month. And so that to me is the next project. And it kind of stems from Crafted, which is again, like this space. And just to put a little bit more color around it, I actually explain Crafted as a living art experience that uses space and food and art to create empathy between disparate groups of people. And for me, going back to like what I view art as, art, the true end goal of art is not to create something beautiful. It's actually to create opportunity for conversation. That conversation can create change, but in a conversationless society that silos us through algorithms, conversations between disparate groups of people kind of stopped happening. And therefore it kind of, limits the amount of change that we can have, like impactful change. So Crafted was that opportunity for me to create a space for a conversation between disparate groups of people to create change. And so extending that, we're looking at how we can actually go into some of these different neighborhoods. So the chef and the guy who actually is going to own these different properties, so I'm a partner in it, but like the main owner, he's from this neighborhood called National City. And for him, he grew up there, but he always had to leave there to go to restaurants or to go to coffee shops or to like go anywhere, which mm -hmm. removes that sense of pride in your neighborhood. And when you have a sense of pride in your neighborhood, then people begin to invest more, invest more time and invest more energy into that neighborhood. It's very similar to like what we're seeing now in San Diego. Now that they see all of these different things are going on, people are more proud to be in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And then they're more likely to invest, more likely to stay. And so what we're trying to do in this neighborhood called National City, where all of our three concepts are actually opening on one street, is trying to create a sense of pride in that neighborhood so people feel prideful, 
they want to stay and they want to reinvest into the community. And so it's almost how do you move into a neighborhood or, or not even move in because he's from there, but how do you reinvest into your community without it ever having the need to be gentrified? So I think we're trying to like for me, that's like my my thing is like, how do we figure out this fucking gentrification problem? Uh-huh. And it's, it's almost going back to my passion for city plan or not passion, but like what my goal of city planning was. It's like going back to like these things that I had from the very beginning, which is how do you create equitable living spaces and make sure that you're fostering opportunities for conversation to create empathy. And so my over the next like couple of years, we're going to be launching those three projects. And then from there, who knows? We'll see. It's probably going to be more stuff like that. Like, how do I just get deeper involved in like helping to build true community? Yeah. And reinvest into community. I'm big on community right now. I see. Yeah. <laughs> well, just to, you know, kind of wrap things up here, Erwin, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? So, of course, you can go to basicagency.com to see the agency's work. And if you want to learn more about Crafted, you can actually go on Instagram at Experience Crafted. Again, that's at Experience Crafted. And then if you want to follow me, it's just at Erwin Hines. Very simple. And that's on Twitter, Instagram? <laughs> this is all on Instagram. I mainly use Instagram, uh, partially because I'm managing a lot of different social accounts. Yeah. And I, I can't be like going back and forth between Twitter, Instagram. I find Instagram like my main space to create conversation. So yeah, definitely the main thing I would encourage people to follow is probably the experience crafted Instagram, just because that's where I put a lot of my time, a lot of my effort outside of basic. Sounds good. Well, Erwin Hines, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, I sort of had an idea when I started this conversation, kind of where things would go, but you, you blew my mind, like uh, finding out about more about your background and, and seeing how now you've been able to weave all of these disparate experiences and influences into your story and then use that to like guide your work and go back out and give to the community. I mean, it is such an inspiring thing to hear. One of the one of the themes that I'm trying to sort of carry throughout the year is basically how are we as black designers helping to build a more equitable future? Whoa. And, <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> and, and I feel that certainly you are doing it if I mean one through your design and branding work, but then also through experience crafted and then through these actual physical spaces, these restaurants and you know, retail space. I mean, when they say people are out here like doing it for the culture, like you're out here doing it for the culture. So thank you so much <laughs> thank for you. coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. And if I could like leave with one one last thing, it actually sure. goes to exactly what you were just saying. I think and I and I feel and I've had a conversation with like other people of color in general, that from a very young age, since we grew up in America, we were actually forced to learn empathy and a sense of understanding of people outside of ourselves before we even were able to understand ourselves. And so I think that that is a very, very powerful tool set as a creative to have in our like tool belt because we can approach every single thing with a broader understanding and bringing that and making sure you're bringing that and making sure you're not shying away from it to me would be like the one thing I hope that people would like move, move forward with. Big, big thanks to Erwin Hines, and of course, thanks to you for listening. 
You can find out more about Irwin and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like a glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This episode is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry with engineering and editing by R.J. Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Our transcripts are provided by Glitch. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.